I want to ask you to read along with me in Revelation 5. We'll uh, go ahead and read through the whole passage. There are 14 verses there in Revelation 5. We're going to read through the whole passage. And uh, then we'll go back through to gain some insight on the particulars of the passage and uh, make a little bit of practical application along the way as we, as we do that. So let's go ahead and read together. Revelation 5. You want your noses and Bibles. Revelation 5, 1 to 14. Here we go. This is John speaking on behalf of the revelation from Jesus. It says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Verse 4. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Jump back with me to verse one. And let's go a smidge at a time here, verse by verse, to sort of cull out the meaning of these words. What we'll see in the first four verses here is that we despair without the plan of God. We despair without the plan of God. Look at verse 1 with me here. Okay, well, look at the first three words. It says this, first verse, Then I saw. Two things we want to point out here in the first three words there of verse 1. Number one, this is part two of the vision uh, that begins in chapter 4 
that we talked about a few weeks ago before we took a little break for, uh, for Palm Sunday and Easter. This is part two of that vision that we talked about a few weeks ago. We're still in the throne room of heaven here. And part of how we know that this scene is a continuation of that scene in chapter 4 is the assumed presence of the elders in verse 6 and the four living creatures who just sort of show up there in verse 8. It's not like they're introduced, they're just referred to because it continues from the previous chapter. So these characters are not introduced here in verse 5, but they are assumed from chapter 4. I'm sorry, from chapter 5, they're assumed from chapter 4. So this scene that we're looking at today is in continuity with chapter 4. It's not in contrast with the previous chapter. Second thing we want to point out is that he says, I saw. The Apostle John here says, I saw. So we are here reading this scene through John's eyes here in chapters 4 and 5. He is receiving this revelation from God. Remember, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelation 1.1. He's receiving this revelation from God, and he is here speaking in the first person. And so here's an, a, a, a key interpretive point for chapter 5. He wants us to experience this revelation with him. We are sort of meant to identify with John. So verse 1 says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Two things to note here. Number one, this is another title for God that we looked at a few times in chapter 4. The one where it says, He who is seated on the throne, Him who is seated on the throne, the one seated on the throne. These are all titles that are used a few times in chapter 4 and used here at the beginning of chapter 5. So we're still watching that same scene unfold. The one who is seated on the throne is God the Father in chapter 4. And here in chapter 5, it's the Son of God who enters the picture as the Lamb in just a few verses. We'll get there in a second. Second thing to point out here is that it says that John saw something in God's right hand. In Scripture, uh, the right hand is a symbol of power and might and strength. Uh, There are numerous passages in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that speak of Christ being seated at the right hand of God the Father. For earthly kings, those who were seated on the right were sort of specially endowed with power. And uh, it's it's, it's why we say that, you know, he or she is our right-hand man, a right-hand woman. Um, It's that, that special place there. And in Matthew 25, when Jesus tells of the parable of the sheep and the goats... Uh, In referring to the final judgment, it is the goats, the rejects, who are placed on the left. And the sheep, those who are saved, who are placed on the right. Psalm 89.13 says that God's right hand is exalted. Psalm 48.10 speaks of God's righteous right hand. In Deuteronomy 33, uh, the lightning, in fact, comes from God's right hand. So in contrast to those passages and and, and literally dozens of others that speak of of power and might coming from God's right hand, uh, there are almost none (laughs) that speak of anything good coming from the left hand. So um, sorry, left-handers. Apparently it is more biblical to be a right hand. No, I'm just kidding. Relax. Don't worry about the emails. You're fine. Long story short, though, the, the, the right hand is a symbol of power and of might. Uh, So John sees in God's right hand, his power hand, he sees this, a scroll written within and on the back. A scroll written within and on the back. 
Now, scrolls in that day were typically written only on the inside, where the writing went with the grain of the papyrus. But this is a scroll that apparently has so much information in it, so much to say that the inside is not enough. So it's written on the inside and on the outside and on the back. This is a way of saying here that God's got a lot to say and that this is weighty and important stuff. There's sort of this this sense of some cool secret that's going on inside there. So it's a scroll that's written within and on the back. And then it says this, it is sealed with seven seals. In the ancient Near East, uh, such scrolls were often used as a deed or a contract and were sealed with these seven seals from witnesses who would take their one and only ring and seal it shut with wax to ensure that their mark was on it. And to ensure that those special uh, contents were only opened by the right people and at the right time, those people had to be there to break the seal. Only the people who wore the right ring. So John is being presented here with a, with a big mama scroll. With, with lots of important information in it. And he saw this next, verse 2. He saw a strong angel. Strong because the entire world would hear the voice, would would hear what he was going to say here. Keep reading verse 2. He was proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? There's one cool translation that says, who is good enough? Who is good enough to open it? The angel is looking, crying out to the whole world, for someone who can open this seal. Someone who can open the scroll and reveal its special contents. It's as if the angel is saying, on behalf of God the Father, who is fit to receive the secrets of God? Because only the right person can do that. There is, of course, great speculation as to the exact contents of the scroll. Uh, Many believe it is the plan of God for judgment and mercy. Uh, Many believe it's the Lamb's book of life. Many believe it's the contents that will show exactly how history is supposed to happen from then on. It is probably some combination of all of those. But frankly, the text doesn't tell us exactly what it is. We will answer it best when we get to chapter 4 there. So put in your back pocket now that question of what is the scroll and why is it so important? We'll talk about that in just a second. For now, it's enough to know um, that the question is posed in verse 2, who can open it? And the answer is found in verse 3, no one. No one. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. Verse 2 was a loud verse, and now after no one can do it, verse 3 is sort of a quiet verse. This angel has just yelled loudly enough for everything in the whole universe to hear it. And then, because of the answer to his question, there is an eerie silence. Because no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth can open it. Which is not good. 
So John becomes a basket case. Look at verse 4. He loses it emotionally. He says, I began to weep loudly. This is sort of a, a deep and intense grief. This is the feeling of, of utter despair when there is no hope. If you're a circler in your Bible, like I am, circle weep loudly and write hopeless despair. That's the feeling that John is experiencing here as he's watching this scene unfold. He had just been told by Christ in 4.1, in Revelation 4.1, that he would show him what must take place after this. And now it looks like this promise would not be able to be kept. Why? Because the second verse of 4, look at that. Because no one was found worthy. No one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now take that question about the scroll out of your back pocket and look at it again here. That question is, what is the scroll and why is it so important? The best answer we can find is in John's response to this situation. Verse 4 says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, now why does John respond with, with such intense grief at that situation? Why is he weeping at the scroll being unopened, unable to be opened? Well, because even though we aren't told exactly here what is in it, because we know from the rest of Revelation what happens once it's opened, then we know enough about it to say that, for example, if this scroll were not opened in 5.9, Jesus would not be worshipped as worthy to open it. Jesus would not be worshipped as the world's redeemer. In Revelation 6.10, the martyrs of the faith would not be avenged. In Revelation 8.4-5, the prayers of the saints would not be answered. In 9.15, God's appointed plan would not come to pass. In 11.15, the kingdom of the world would not become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. In 16-18, through 18, the wicked would not be avenged, would not be judged. I'm sorry, judged. In 19-20, Jesus would not come back. And in 21-22, God would not reign in glory in the new heavens and the new earth. So if this scroll is not opened, the Bible's promises do not come true. Hope would have no chance, evil would win, and total despair would be the result, and weeping loudly is indeed the appropriate kind of response. So if this, if this scroll is not opened, forget it. Nothing matters. So the issue of finding someone worthy to open this scroll is perhaps one of the most important moments in all of history up there with the cross and Jesus' resurrection. Because the final consummation of the plan of God won't happen if Jesus is not able to be found worthy to open that scroll. And that is a cause for despair. But of course, beginning with verse 5, when we witness to the hope of God in Christ, we need not weep for despair. It says this, verse 5, when we witness to the hope of God, verse 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, 
In other words, wake up, stop crying, watch this. <laughs> That's what he's saying. So the elder draws John's attention to the conquering lamb and says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. These are Old Testament ways of speaking of the, the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the anointed one, who has conquered. This is, continue reading here. This is uh, the rest of that verse. Who has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. If you remember back in the letters to the churches, those who follow Christ are repeatedly there called conquerors. Conquerors is the title given to us. But it's not because we have conquered, but because our sin has been conquered for us by Christ. We are, we are overcomers because He can open the scroll and its contents and its seven seals. So he alone is worthy. Now, now the scene takes a bit of a curious bent. Really cool stuff here. Look at verse 6. Listen to this paradox. It says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, it says this, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Press pause because we're going to camp out here a bit on verse 6. While Jesus has never been a literal lamb, he was slaughtered like one. And John here in this vision sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is a profoundly important word picture for us here in Revelation. Think of the scope of this kind of occurrence in the whole Bible when it comes to these lambs. Even though... Every lamb that was sacrificed in the Old Testament pointed to Christ. There was only one reference in the Old Testament to him being a lamb. And we find that in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 7. If you can write that down and look at it later. I'm not sure if we have it up there. I don't think we do today. 53, 7 says this. Great verse. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The word for slain here in Revelation 6 means the same thing it meant there in Isaiah 53, which is to be slaughtered or killed violently. The implication is that the killing lacks mercy. It is also used in John 10.10 where it says the thief comes only to still kill, kill. There's that word slaughter there. The thief only comes to steal kill and destroy the greek nerds see this picture here in revelation 6 as a description of the risen christ whose marks of slaughter could still be seen by john so think about this the lamb though alive has marks on its body that show it had been killed so think of this paradox in the middle of this heavenly throne room in the very presence of holy God, it says there was a lamb standing as though it had been slain. You know what lambs do? They get slaughtered. And when sheep get slaughtered, they don't stand. But we're seeing a picture of Jesus conquered, though slaughtered. 
It's the greatest paradox in the world. The sinless king of the universe overcame all his enemies when it looked like all his enemies had overcome him. Satan had even tricked his, God's own people. Satan had even tricked God's own people into murdering their own Messiah. And yet, while he was being defeated, he was, in fact, establishing his reign as king of all kings. Listen to how one scholar puts it. He says this, The present victorious effect of the Lamb's overcoming resides not only in the fact that the Lamb continues to stand, but also in the fact that it continues to exist as a slaughtered Lamb. In other words, He is both standing and slaughtered. The cool thing about Scripture here is that the verbiage is intended to be so ambiguous that you can't tell which is supposed to be most prevalent. Standing, slaughtered. Slaughtered, standing. So is he standing? Yes. (laughs) Are slaughtered lambs able to stand? No. Is he alive? Yes. Does he look like he should be alive? No. He is standing and yet slaughtered. Slaughtered and yet at the same time standing. Which means, friends, when you are burdened by the echoes of of the lies of Satan in your head. (laughs) Rebuke him by saying, bet you didn't see that one coming. Who could have? Only a God like we worship overcomes death by death. Which means that God has completely redefined what victory looks like. Death is actually how victory happens now. Not just for him, but also for us. As a bonus truth that we all need to hear and let sink in, let me throw something else in the mix. We need to get clear on this. When no one was found worthy to open the scroll... It wasn't because you weren't around yet. Many of us could use a little more of John's despair over sin. Some of us have so glossed over the depth of our sin that we could use a little John-like despair. Some of you, some of us, so easily have a selfishly superficial understanding of the depth of our sin that we don't even know why we're not worthy. Not a good place to be. Many of us could use a healthy dose of dispensing with the filthy rags, as the Old Testament calls them. The filthy rags of our so-called works of righteousness that fundamentally get us nowhere with God. How many of us are still acting like we earn salvation because we do this or we don't do this when we hardly even begin to revel in the beautiful truth that Christ's atoning work for us is the only possible way to know Him? 
The reason, in fact, that many do not worship is because you hardly know from what you've been saved. Filthy rags is the term God uses to talk about the achievements of the flesh. And let me assure you that when no one was found worthy to open the scroll, it wasn't because we hadn't yet arrived. They weren't sitting there waiting for us to show up to hold up righteousness so that the seals could be opened. On the other hand, on the other hand, if you are keenly aware of your sinful self and the unrighteousness that you brought to your broken relationship with God, the truth of the Lamb standing as though slain is a beautiful comfort. If you know this Lamb as your replacement on what should have been your cross, then your destiny is not despair, it is victory. Because your greatest problem has already been forever fixed. The decisive battle has already been fought and won, so live as a conqueror. Stop fighting the battle that only Jesus can win. When we begin to realize what we've been saved from, we realize we can't even pick up the correct weaponry in this kind of battle. So let the conqueror be the conqueror. Let Jesus' blood be enough for you. And let your good works be motivated by a loving and an intimate relationship with the Lamb instead of trying to deserve it all over again. And if you're a follower of Christ and you're wronged and you're hurt and you're angry, just give it up and learn to live from the truth that just like Christ, vindication may not come until He completes His work. Living as a conqueror now means living through the One who conquers. Living as a conqueror now means living through the One who conquers. It doesn't work any other way. Whew, lots more to get to. Verse 6. Keep reading. It says the Lamb has seven horns. He is with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. Uh, the horns are symbols of power, and the eyes show that the Lamb is omniscient, has all knowledge. So because of this power and knowledge, verse 7, He went and He took the scroll from the right hand, remember His power hand there, the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne from God the Father. So Christ alone is worthy of taking that scroll from Almighty God's right hand. No one else approaches this throne and receives the scroll and lives. But we are now, like John, witnesses to the hope of God being able to do that in Christ. Which means, verses 8 to 14, that we worship Him as worthy. The rest of the passage is this picture of the appropriate response in witnessing the Lamb who brings hope from despair. Look at verses 8 through 14 here, where we worship the Son of God. Verse 8 says this, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Like they had done in 4.10, they fall prostrate before the Lamb who was Lord. If God the Father deserved it, now likewise the Lamb deserves it. This is evidence of the full deity of Christ. Uh, there is 
<laughs> Scripture is replete with evidences of that if you have eyes to see them. Verse 8 continues, saying that they are each holding a harp. Instruments are being used here. Golden bowls, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is a cool picture of the smells and the aromas of the prayers of the saints going up to God. It's a way of saying that, that in the Lamb, prayers for relief are heard. So the response of worship continues in verse 9. And this is where it begins to reverberate throughout the whole of creation. It says they sing a new song. There will never be, by the way, a shortage of awesome things to discover about God. People have this mistaken notion that what are you going to do all day in heaven? You're going to continue to enjoy discovering the beauty of the character and nature of a perfect, infinite, sinless God who died for you. Nothing's going to be better. There will be no boredom because we will continue to discover new and wonderful things about His goodness and His glory that we've never seen yet. So they sang a new song. They went like this. Keep reading. Worthy are you. Notice the emphasis on the you throughout this passage here. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. What a cool phrase that is. By your blood, you ransomed people. You bought them back for God. And a little side note. <laughs> the kind of people he ransomed weren't just right-wing white Christians from the Bible Belt. Diversity is not just a cultural buzzword. It is a theological imperative. According to the conquering lamb who ransomed, he bought back people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Somehow God gets more glory by more kinds of people from more kinds of places than our little view likes to enjoy. <laughs> and here's what the ransom received, verse 10. It says, you have made them a kingdom of kingdom and priests to our God. They receive the status of conqueror. It says they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 1, 5-6 says, like it does here, that Christ has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom and priests. Exodus 19 foretells this when God tells His people, Now therefore, if you indeed will obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine, and you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This kind of verbiage about kingdom and priests is picked up later on in 1 Peter 2, a super cool passage. 1 Peter 2.9, which we should all take to heart. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Revelation is, is grabbing up these ideas from Scripture, all over Scripture, and proclaiming the truth of what it looks like to be a co-heir with Christ in glory. So I hope you're catching the significance of this. In Christ's victory, as the Lamb standing though slain, we reign as victorious. Not because we did it, but because He makes us kingdom and priests. 
So the natural response, as we've noted, is worship, which continues to reverberate from the throne room outward. Look at verse 11. It says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Uh, Conservative estimates of these numbers have it in at least the millions. Uh, Many interpreters think myriads of myriads is a way of saying hundreds of millions perhaps Uh, so you can imagine that when they get together verse 12 it's loud saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing if you're counting there are seven things listed there that the lamb is worthy to receive power wealth wisdom mighty might honor glory and blessing we've noted that seven is a number of completeness which means here Verse 12 is saying that God deserves all glory. All glory. So stop stealing it. He deserves all glory. Stop stealing it. The praise continues to reverberate into all creation. Verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them In case it's not obvious, this includes every creature. (laughs) And the song of praise goes like this. To Him who sits in the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said Amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. Because of the scene We know that Christ alone is worthy of all praise. I want us to think for just a second in in, in concluding here. Think of the contrast between Christ's earthly life and this powerful scene of universal worship that shows us reality. The contrast between Christ's earthly life and this scene of universal worship that shows us the reality of things. On earth, Jesus' enemies said he was worthy to die, but the angels say he is worthy of praise. Who do you think is right on that one? His own people accused him of working by Satan's power. But the angels say that he alone contains the power of the right hand of God the Father. He became poor for our sakes, but in reality, he deserves all riches. To sinful man, the preaching of the the cross is, is foolishness. But to the angels and to those who love him, the preaching of the cross is infinite wisdom and beauty. On earth, Jesus was crucified in weakness, but in heaven... He is even now, as we speak, lauded and praised for His eternal power. He was dishonored on earth, and He is today and forevermore honored in glory. The question is if we will get in line. With the rest of creation. Lord God, we continue 